Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. This is my interview with Dr. Michael Perlis, PhD. He is an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Psychiatry. He is internationally known for his work in the area of behavioral sleep medicine and is a co-author of the first textbook in this field. He is a world-renowned uh, researcher and speaker in the area of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI, which is an evidence-based treatment for insomnia. So I hope you all enjoy this interview with Dr. Michael Perlis. So to, to get started, would you mind kind of giving people a, a brief background of uh, uh, your, your training and the kind of work that you do now? Mm-hmm. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I studied under one of the masters, which would be Dick Bootson. Um, I was also very close with Art Spielman, and the two of them are really the founding fathers of CBTI, though they would not have called it that at the time. Um, that's sort of a later development when things kind of got put together. Um, so I said clinical psychologist by training, trained under Dick Bootson. I was actually a sleep person long before. Most people find their way to sleep medicine, behavioral sleep medicine later in life, because it's usually not something that's offered as a specialty in grad school or med school. Um, and so for me, it was unusual because in my 20s, I knew what I wanted to do. And I went and volunteered in what I thought was going to be a human lab at the NIH with Wally Mendelssohn. And it turned out to be an animal lab. So that was uh, an awakening. And also one of the best mistakes I ever made because it sensitized me to a lot of things and exposed me to a lot of things that clinical psychologists typically are not exposed to. So my psychopharm background, my neuroscience background in this way is much better than most clinical psychologists. Um, also, as I said, I'm longer in the tooth. Uh, you know, when I was younger, it was easy to say that. And I've been doing it for 20 years since my 20s. Now the numbers uh, add up to an age that I'm not thrilled about, but it beats the alternative. So we're good. So I've been doing sleep medicine in various ways since the 1980s. And I really didn't come into what we would call today behavioral sleep medicine until I started studying with Dick uh, Bootson at University of Arizona. And I have to tell you, I had no interest in CBTI at all. And I had no interest in placebo research at all and swore that I would never do any of that stuff. I would stick with what I was interested in, which was the mood regulating functions of sleep, depression, and so on. And as life would have it, it turns out that my main items of my career have been CBTI and placebo research. Uh, it, it's funny the way these things work out. 
Um, in terms of, you know, my being anybody for CBTI, I, I should really clarify this. Um, at first, in the beginning, there was many people, but primarily Dick Bootson and Art Spielman. Dick Bootson formulated stimulus control, and uh, Art Spielman, of course, uh, formulated something called sleep restriction. And together, those therapies form the backbone of CBTI. There are other things that we'll talk about. Um, they were largely considered separate therapies and almost competitive therapies. You would do this or that. And it took Charles Morin to really integrate and begin to build an evidence base for the power of these two therapies, which literally work hand in hand. That they were ever seen as distinct entities is kind of funny, and we can talk about why later. But at the end of the day, it was Art Spielman and Dick Bootson. Then Morin came along and codified everything, put it together, wrote the first treatment manual. In fact, he did so much work, I started wondering what I was going to do with my career because he hadn't really left anything else for anybody else, left anything for anybody else. Um, but it turns out that where Charles stopped was how do we get this to the masses? And how do we create the kind of treatment manuals that can be picked up by a knowledgeable clinician, better yet, a knowledgeable psychiatric clinician, psychological clinician, and get them going? How, how do we stop producing therapists one by one and start doing it in the dozens, if not the hundreds? Mm -hmm. And it, that's where I'm more responsible is to codify CBTI in a way that could be digested, assimilated. I was just watching Star Trek last night, so assimilation works very well for me today. Um, that could be assimilated by people with a good clinical background, and particularly psychologists and psychiatrists, but of course, psychiatric nurse practitioners, psychi psychiatric social workers, and so on. So we started that movement, and it became a society. It's called the Society uh, of or for Behavioral Sleep Medicine, depending upon who you ask. And those are the things where I'm kind of responsible, which was beginning the real process of dissemination and implementation. Yeah. And the background behind that is behind that sort of public service work, if you will, is a real interest in the pathophysiology and etiology of insomnia. And that's where I think most of my empirical work shines. So that's sort of my background. I'm at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Psychiatry. I'm very happy to be here. And in part because the sleep medicine community at Penn is unbelievable. And so there's always someone to talk to about how do you do this? And I don't understand that. What does this mean? So there's always resources. Really, the only other place that resembles it would be Harvard, and at one time, if not now, Stanford. These three schools are pretty much the key places that have a critical mass of people that do sleep medicine, sleep research. There are other great places, but not quite like these. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you for that background. And I think, um, you know, for everyone listening, we're going to head into a lightning round right now where you can start to hopefully get some takeaway information uh, about 
you know, what really defines a sleep problem and what are some of these approaches that Michael and uh, his colleagues have been working on uh, to get to help you to sleep better. Uh, so lightning round, the first question, Michael, is what defines normal sleep? Yeah, that defies lightning, but uh, I think you hit it uh, on the head when you kind of labeled a couple of categories. One is, let's call it something different. Let's call it sleep continuity. And what that means is how fast do you fall asleep? How often do you awaken? How long are you awake in the middle of the night? How early do you awaken before your alarm? How much sleep do you get? And how efficient is it? Let's call all of those things, which are very related to insomnia, sleep continuity. Um, that term is controversial, uh, we, but we need a class term because there are other things going on of relevance, as you pointed out. So the next thing of relevance would be, okay, normal sleep can be defined in terms of sleep continuity. The next thing is, well, what about when you do it and how many times you do it? And those would be more circadian issues. And are you sleeping in your preferred phase and does that work out for you? Or actually, I think it might be better to say, are you sleeping in your preferred phase? And if you're not, how's that going? So the average bear might be an 11 to seven sleeper, but if the person has to sleep from eight in the morning till three, they're out of their preferred phase. That would be shift work and how's that working? Okay, mm -hmm. so there's phase or circadian issues, there's sleep continuity issues, and then there's sleep architecture issues, which with the advent of polysomnography, now that's different from polygraphy. Polygraphy is about lying and detection of lies. And interestingly, we use a lot of the same measures, but we're not trying to detect whether you're lying about something or not. We're trying to detect objectively sleep continuity, but also sleep's not one thing. It's many things, and we're trying to quantify the many things. So creatively, those are called stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and REM sleep, where stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four are collectively known as non-REM sleep, which is ironic because non-REM sleep is naming 80% of sleep, not the other 20%. So it's a funny name. We can talk mm -hmm. more about it. So there is some idea of what constitutes normal sleep architecture and what happens when those things become abnormal. So you take those three things together, sleep continuity, sleep architecture, sleep phase or circadian parameters, and you can begin to start defining what's normal. Okay. To that, I might add one thing, mm -hmm. which is sleep is defined, at least in one way, by electroencephalography, EEG. And the EEG itself can be assessed for how normal is that. Do you have the normal theta-delta patterns of somebody asleep, or do you have some hybrid state that's overlaid with alpha, beta, or gamma frequencies? So sort of wake and sleep smashed together. So these are the dimensions in which we analyze sleep, those four things. Well, I'm, I'm kind of laughing to myself because I, I think I'm too curious for us to do this lightning round. No, thing. no, no. I, <laughs> no, just take I a wanna, note. Let's go well, back. 
Okay. I All promise right. we'll, I'll be more short-winded. In the we'll stick course. with it. Well, no, I mean, because I have questions about each of those. But all right, uh, for any listeners out there, we will come back to some of those. So, so next question, lightning round. What are the most common sleep disorders and specifically what is insomnia? Yeah, common requires that we actually know. And because we tend to focus on two or three of them, I'm not sure we do actually know what's most common. And then the other problem is because I'm an insomnia guy and I assess insomnia and you're a pulmonologist and you assess and obsess over obstructive sleep apnea or other forms of sleep disordered breathing, uh, we don't really have a lot of literature on profiling sleep health. And maybe it's the case that people have lots of disorders or subclinically have lots of issues, but it depends who you go to and what you get diagnosed with. Um, I think we really need to get past this disorder versus that because they tend to cluster together, in my opinion. But to answer your question directly and quickly for the lightning round, the two most prominent sleep disorders, so we think, are insomnia by a lot, followed maybe a distant second, uh, maybe not, uh, sleep disordered breathing, which could include a variety of things, including sleep apnea. Those are the two biggies, but they're, maybe they're big because they're what we're looking for as opposed to what's out there. And you can ask and you'll get different answers from people, but there are roughly 13 sleep disorders. And so the question now is, well, what about the other 11? And how often do they happen? And most people are going to shrug their shoulders and say, well, they're not as common as sleep apnea and insomnia. And that's probably true because that's what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. So in brief, the answer to your question was the most common sleep disorders are insomnia and sleep disordered breathing. But maybe that's because that's what we're looking for. Okay. All right, next question. How does somebody know if they have clinically significant insomnia? Oh, God, they know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not really a question of knowing whether they have it or not. Mm -hmm. I, I'm actually very interested in the subject of what prompts people to say, just like you're asking, is this clinical or is this just I'm old? Mm. Is, is this really above and beyond where I should be as a pregnant woman? or as a depressed person. And, you know, should I really not sweat it because it's about the pregnancy, it's about the depression, it's about the aging. Um, there, of course, is a definition, a clinical diagnostic criteria for insomnia, and it's something like this. Problems falling and staying asleep. Notice there's no numbers there. Three or more days a week for three or more months. And if that's your profile, get thee to a nunnery a.k.a. get thee to a sleep disorder center, get thee to a clinician. Um, you know, it's probably already too long. Three months is a funny number, and I'm not sure how they came up with that. Well, I'm sure I know how they came up with it. It was a consensus conference, and they went, one month, six months, three months, okay. Okay, so hardly an empirically derived criteria, but... And it's varied over the years from two weeks to a month to three months to six months in terms of clinically relevant chronicity for insomnia. But I think the short answer to your question is insomnia is just what you think it is. 
It's problems falling and staying asleep and waking up too early in the morning before your alarm when you wanted to sleep up to the alarm. Okay. It's interesting that I say that without reference to total sleep time. I never said a word about how much sleep you're getting. Mm -hmm. That is not part of the definition. Perhaps it should be, and there's lots of reasons why it isn't. But we, between you and me and your listeners, we can say if you're getting six or less, that's low. And that should concern you. So what about the problems falling and staying asleep and waking up too early? Can I put a number on that? I did. I said three days a week. No, you didn't. You didn't say how long is bad. Okay. We For research, we say 30 minutes. 30 minutes or more, you're eligible for our research. Does that mean 15 to 30 minutes is a zone where treatment is worthless? Not at all. Below 15 minutes, that's a different issue. That's getting more into the normal range. Mm -hmm. So somewhere above 15 minutes for three or more days a week. Now, but the issue of chronicity is the kicker. Uh, it would be wonderful if people were sensitized to this and say, after two to four weeks of this, that's too much. I'm going to go see my doctor. Because that would be the great time to treat people when it's mm -hmm. new. We don't see those people. We see them after 10, 20, 30 years, where the conversation is usually something like this. And now then we'll move on to the next question. How long have you had your insomnia? Long time. How long is long since my first kid? When was your first kid born? 30 years ago. Is this the first time you're seeking treatment? Yes. What took you so long? Okay. So if there were going to be a culture change, don't put up with it for so long. Mm. Um, how long is too long? How long before it really runs amok and starts creating other problems like health problems, mental health problems? We don't know. My best guess is, and I've done a lot of this natural history work now, Somewhere around two weeks to a month, the insomnia stakes starts to take root and it's going to be more difficult to treat. So it would be wonderful if people said, I can't fall asleep, stay asleep, I wake up too early. It's somewhere in the 15 to 30 minute zone, happens three days or more a week, and it's been two weeks, go see a doctor, go see mm -hmm. a clinician. End of question. All right, great. So then once they do go and see a doctor, how is insomnia treated? Oh, good segue. Um, you can go three routes. Self-help, please don't. Um, and part of that has to do with what's out there as putatively helpful and it's not. Let me give you an example, sleep hygiene. If I had the power to erase that from every part of the internet, to erase it from every obelisk and monument, I would. It's not the right advice by and large, and it's not empirically validated. It's not evidence-based whatsoever. Okay. Does it mean that's useless? No, but if you think you're going to take that fly swatter and swat away insomnia, you are not. Okay, so there's this one group of things that you do yourself. You read, you do sleep hygiene, you purge caffeine from your diet, and so on and so on. Most of that is ill-advised and badly informed. Don't do that. The second is medication. Unlike most clinical psychologists, I am pretty well versed in the medical management of insomnia. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and I am not an opponent. I just, in fact, I think the medications are pretty good. I just think we do it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Okay, and we can come back to that. But the medical option is a good one, especially early on. You know, if your insomnia is taking root and you're in that two to four week zone, a month of medical treatment could make a huge difference. But it can't be, oh, as needed and take as little as possible, just lick the pill. No, we have to take it more seriously than that. Um, The analogy I like to use is this. Forever, we have thought about insomnia like chronic pain and the hypnotics like opioids. We're terrified. And maybe that analogy is terribly incorrect. Maybe the appropriate way to think about insomnia and its treatment is that insomnia is like an infection and sleeping pills are like antibiotics. And one thing I can promise you, if you take fractional doses for an inappropriately short amount of time, whatever infection you have is not gonna go away, but get instead more virulent and you will become resistant to treatment. So this implies that I think that medical therapy is most useful early on, very aggressive, Mm. okay? Very much unlike most clinical psychologists. Most clinical psychologists hear the word benzodiazepine and lose their marbles, Mm. okay? Not me. There are other things we can do, and we'll come back to that in a bit, but one thing I've been developing is not hypnotics, but stimulant therapy for insomnia. And as crazy as that sounds, and it does sound crazy, we're gonna take somebody who's wired and cannot sleep and give them stimulants. Really great idea. (laughs) I can explain this one later, but right now that is not um, standard practice, so let's leave that aside. Um, The medical management approach has four classes of compounds. One is, let's leave off the old stuff. So I'm not gonna talk about chloral hydrate. I'm not gonna talk about barbiturates. Modern therapy is composed of four classes. Benzodiazepine slash what we call BZRAs. That stands for benzodiazepine receptor agonists. Okay, Uh, that's one class. Second class would be SADS or sedating antidepressants. Um, Everybody does that. Mm-hmm. That that's so common, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, and there's reasons why primary care is gravitating in that direction. Mm. Uh, as it turns out, uh, some of that is sensible, some of that is unknown, mm-hmm. some of that is not appropriate. So, BZs, BZRAs, SADs. The next category is fairly new. We'll call them Doras. I love that because it sounds like Dora the Explorer to me. Mm-hmm. But the DORAs are dual orexin receptor antagonists, um, things like lemborexant, suvorexant. You know, you hear the rexants in there. Mm-hmm. They're all the rexants. Um, these are newer drugs. They are not um, BZRAs. They are not active at the benzodiazepine receptors. They're very different mechanism of action. Uh, and then finally, there's melatonin agonists. Not melatonin, melatonin agonists. And there's only two of those, and only one is indicated for insomnia, which is rimeltine. And we can talk about that, but uh, I'm not a big fan. 
simply because there's overwhelming evidence that melatonin is a chronobiotic, not a hypnotic. Uh, and so its indication for insomnia is really very narrow. And melatonin is worse because it's unregulated. But that's one of the places that people in category one will go is to the naturopathy store to pick up some melatonin to cure their insomnia, which frankly will not work well. But anything taken for a very long period of time might be helpful, including water and unfilled gelatin capsules. Um, <laughs> Spoken we'll like a placebo researcher. Yes, <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that, but it's not anything to do with somehow patients with insomnia are gullible. That's not the issue. Okay? Mm. It's not about expectancy. So we've covered the classes of medical treatment. First class was self-help, don't. Second was med treatment, probably best initially. Third is CBTI. CBTI was named by me. Don't let anyone tell you different, <laughs> but they will. Um, there's a good story behind this one. I'll spare you at the lightning round of what that is. But we were just trying to get people to differentiate between other forms of cognitive behavior therapy mm -hmm. and us. Because ours is very distinct, uh, very grounded in sleep medicine. So CBTI is the behavioral intervention. This is more indicated for chronic insomnia, but the truth is it would work just fine for acute. And in fact, could be done quicker, faster, more effectively in that context. Mm -hmm. CBTI is a multi-component treatment that is comprised usually of three things, stimulus control, sleep restriction, sleep hygiene. Now, I just finished bashing sleep hygiene saying how worthless it is. We can come back to this. It's not worthless. It's worthless by itself. It's no cure for chronic insomnia by itself, but it does have a place as one of the component therapies of CBTI. CBTI obviously is CBT for insomnia. I, I didn't think it was going to catch on. I really hoped it would. And now there's CBTP, CBTD, CBTA, uh, and this is actually running very counterculture to the transdiagnostic movement. And I couldn't be happier to pick that fight uh, because while there is absolutely a common core that runs through mental health diagnoses, assessment, and treatment, it doesn't mean that the targeted aspects of therapy are irrelevant. And that's where I, I take issue with those folks. Next question. All right. Good. Well, there's some there's some meaty stuff in there for us to dive into. Um, so CBTI, you started to mention it. So what are the major components of CBTI? I guess you, you, you covered those. Um, would you mind repeating those for the, the listeners? And I'll embellish a little bit. Sure. So CBTI, Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Insomnia, is and we might talk about who it's delivered by and how do you know who's good mm -hmm. versus you know somebody that says oh i do cbt yeah they do for depression mm -hmm. and there's also issues there around the primary secondary distinction um, about insomnia and we should come back to that but typically cbti as opposed to cbta cbtd cbtp has three components. One is called sleep restriction. It's kind of an unfortunate term and inaccurate. 
And we can come back to that one. It was developed by Art Spielman, who was, it was just a scintillatingly paradigmatic shifting thing that this man did. Stimulus control, I got to tell you, I really didn't appreciate stimulus control, even though I studied under Dick Brutzen. <clears throat> In fact, I thought it was frankly kind of stupid. And it's like the old joke. When I was 18, my father was an idiot. And by the time I turned 35, it was amazing how much he learned. <laughs> okay. Same thing. By the time I entered my 40s, 50s, 60s, I realized what an amazing thing Dick Bootson had done with stimulus control and started to appreciate the nuance of it and how beautifully hand in glove it fit to sleep restriction therapy. So sleep restriction therapy might be called something different by other people just because they don't want people to be afraid of it or because they don't want people to think they know it. So there are other terms for each of these therapies that I won't get into. Sleep hygiene is a really nice thing to do to help educate people about sleep. If you go through those rules and say which ones are boulder dash and which ones are real and which ones have evidence and which ones don't and which ones might be useful for prophylaxis, you know, to help keep the insomnia from coming back, relapsing, that's a good way to teach sleep hygiene. And that's why it's so useful in the context of CBTI. Now, beyond this, other people add stuff. Mindfulness is one of the newest ones. And frankly, mindfulness has the potential to replace the C in CBTI. C being cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy, we can talk more about it later, has lots of different aspects. Some of it is very formal exercise-based stuff. And some of it is salesmanship and education. And we can talk about that. You okay? Things yes. are very silent. There you are. No worries. Um, so mindfulness potentially is a alternative to cognitive therapy. And while really learning mindfulness takes a monk's skills and a Jedi master to teach it to you, there are levels of mindfulness that are simple, that you can help people be in the moment without judgment. And in insomnia moments, that really helps to experience it without being provoked. So there's mindfulness that lots of people have added. The, the biggest proponent of mindfulness and the best researcher and scientist around, clinical researcher around this issue is a guy named Jason Ong. And I would say he alone is responsible for bringing mindfulness to CBTI. Mm -hmm. um, an older component of CBTI is some form of relaxation training. Um, we don't advocate for it. We don't even describe it in our manuals because we don't think it's necessary in general. But that doesn't mean that there aren't specific cases where people really would benefit by learning progressive muscle relaxation or diaphragmatic breathing or autogenics training. Those are all things that might be reserved for special cases, but do they carry the wallop of SRT, sleep restriction therapy or SCT, stimulus control therapy? Not usually, no, not even close. So maybe as adjuvant therapies to CBTI, bright light, 
Um, maybe medications. This is a place where I think combo therapy can really work out with stimulants. Um, I'm thinking largely of modofinil, but there are other possibilities like solrampitol. Um, and add to the three, SCT, SRT, and sleep hygiene, possibility of mindfulness, bright light, relaxation training. Those are common adjuvants, mm -hmm. if not historically big parts. So that's CBTI. Great. Now, notice I didn't describe the techniques, nor will I on this round. Yeah. Well, I think in the uh, the next question here, to flesh it out for people, let's let's take an example of somebody that normally takes at least an hour to fall asleep. Let's imagine like a, a 45-year-old lawyer and mother uh, who takes at least an hour to fall asleep because they're anxious thinking about things for work, thinking about things for the kids. And, and then on top of it, they haven't gotten good sleep lately, so now they're anxious or just thinking over and over about how annoyed they are that they're not able to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So how can we apply some of these CBTI principles to, to that person? So there's different directions to go here. We haven't talked about efficacy, so let's take a minute to do that. Yeah, sure. Medication and CBTI produce the same treatment outcomes acutely. 50% reduction in four weeks or less. If you take an hour to fall asleep, like the case you were just describing, that's going to drop to at least 30 or modally or on average 30 minutes. Most people are ecstatic with that level of improvement. Okay. Meds will give it to you. CBTI will give it to you. The difference between meds and CBTI is that when you stop meds, typically you relapse. When you stop CBTI, you stay just where you left off. But wait, sorry about that, but wait, there's more. And the more is many patients, somewhere around 50 to 70% start improving without us, okay? But it's not that they're SL or they're WASO or they're EMA. I know those are acronyms we haven't used yet. So SL stands for sleep latency or sleep onset problems. WASO stands for wake after sleep onset problems. And EMA, I know it sounds like you know, a name for mom or something, but uh, it stands for early morning awakening. Okay, so those are your three flavors of insomnia, early, middle, and late insomnia, SL problems, WASO problems, EMA problems. Um, typically those drop by 50%. And when you start watching people six months, 12 months, 24 months later, those don't improve, but total sleep time does. Um, typically, people get on average about 50 minutes more in the, in the months that follow CBTI, not during CBTI, afterwards. And this is a bit of a mystery why this happens, because SL, WASO, and EMA are the same, and TST is rising, total sleep time is rising, sleep duration is rising. Okay. And it's that clinical profile of really durable, really good acute results equal to medication, really durable over years, and then further improvement that has led even the medical community to say the first-line treatment for insomnia, period, is CBTI. It wasn't us who said it. It wasn't a psychology community. It wasn't the behaviorists. It was a medical a leading medical society, the American College of Physicians, that said CBTI is the first line treatment. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So, see, that was the efficacy bit. 
to tell you that this troika, this trilogy, this trinity of therapies produces about a 50% change that is durable over the course of years and where you can expect further improvement after treatment is completed, particularly with respect to sleep duration. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. Can meds do that? Not as far as we know. Now, I would, as they say on CNN, I would caveat that, which is, of course, not a word that way. But I would caveat that by saying, I'm not so sure medications can't do a better job than they're doing, but they certainly cannot do it the way we're prescribing now. Mm. Okay. It's a, the way we approach the medical management of insomnia in my book is too fearful and not practical. Mm -hmm. And it's leading to a kind of therapy that is doomed to be ineffective in anything but the short run. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's that. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about uh, CBTI, its components, its efficacy. Next question. Or and so now applying that yeah, to the to the 45 year old lawyer and mother. Oh, right. So first of all, worry and can't turn off your mind, racing mind and distress. Those things may precipitate insomnia. In fact, the mother of insomnia is stress, is threat, is physical distress. Uh, is disease processes, whether you know you have them or not. Um, these things all trigger acute insomnia. Um, but chronic insomnia is probably a very different beast. And what keeps it going is probably nothing to do with your perception or response to threat. I have an expression for this. Do you worry because you're awake? Or do you, are you awake because you're worrying? Okay. The former is acute insomnia. You're awake because you're worrying. Okay. Something is threatening your well-being and you're terrified. Okay. When the insomnia is chronic, whenever that happens, worry is epiphenomenal. Worry is you're awake, so you might as well worry about it because that's what we do in the middle of the night. We think of stuff and go, wow, that's bad. And then we think of how it could be really bad and much worse. We call this the sleep of reason. And what we're referring to is in the middle of the night, you have no frontal lobes. And so there's nobody there to rein you in and say, that's just crazy thinking. Don't think that. <laughs> so we worry in the middle of the night when you have chronic insomnia because you're awake. Mm. Okay. Not the other way around. Right. Speaking of the sleep of reason, that's the poster behind me. I did a revision. Can you see it? Yeah, I can see it. Yep. Um, I did a revision of Goya's painting. Or actually, I should say a colleague of mine named Michael Leonard did a revision of this to my spec, where we show the idea that it is a bad thing to be awake when reason sleeps. That... When you're awake in the middle of the night, you are in no position to be problem solving, thinking, ruminating. It's going to be not a good thing. Mm. Uh, as it turns out, we believe this so much, we started studying suicide rates by time of day. Oh, wow. And it turns out that suicide is between two and six times more common at night from about two to five 
than any other time of day, taking into account how many people are awake at those times. Wow. So this is a really bad time to be making life and death decisions. It's a bad time to be thinking about anything that's serious. Hmm. Because we are so given to irrational thinking in the middle of the night. How do you fix that? Get people to sleep. Yep. Okay. So we were talking about um, this lawyer, and I was wondering, you know, how long she had had the insomnia. And I was going to assume that she's had it for a while because you've heard about it. Mm -hmm. And usually that takes three to six months, if not 10 years. Mm -hmm. So. The worry is irrelevant now. Uh, it's epiphenomenal. Trust us. A little CBTI, a little silver, a little lumborexant, she won't be worrying. Okay, she'll be out. Mm. So there's a big difference between chronic insomnia and acute. We don't really. They look so similar. We think they're the same entities, just one's mini-me and one's bigger-me, but not likely. They're likely symptomatically similar, but physiologically and neurophysiologically distinct. Mm -hmm. Okay, I actually think acute insomnia is a good thing. Okay, I think that we have insomnia as a species for a reason. Mm. I've, I alluded to this in the beginning of our chat. If there's a lion looking at you, licking his lips, it's a terrible time to sleep. Okay, and it doesn't matter how long you've been awake, i.e. homeostatic regulation of sleep. It doesn't matter that it's three in the morning, i.e. circadian regulation of sleep. If there's a lion looking at you, licking his lips, stay awake. Okay, and I honestly believe that God in her infinite wisdom designed a off switch for sleep for emergencies, mm -hmm. okay? And it makes perfect sense. There's another quote that I'm very fond of. Let's see if I can share it with you. We live with insomnia today because at some point in our evolutionary past, insomnia allowed us to live. Mm -hmm. But they're talking about acute insomnia. Right. A week, a day, not three months, not six months, not 12 months, not 10 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for your lawyer colleague, or your lawyer friend, I would say the first question of interest would be, how long has this been going on? And frankly, if it were my family and it had been more than two weeks, I would say, let's get you set up with an evaluation. Let's not wait the 10 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, for, two, for several reasons. Reason number one, why do you live with something that you don't have to live with? Mm -hmm. Number two, if you let insomnia go untreated, it is a morbid risk factor for disease. Mm morbid risk factor for not only psychological and psychiatric disease, but also medical disease. Yep. So treatment is the buzzword of the day. Get assessed, get treated. How long do you wait? Don't wait long. A couple of weeks, month. Okay. Next question. Well, so I, I do want to ask a, a follow-up question with that. So, you know, so say that we start CBTI for her. How would that actually look? Well, the first thing is finding somebody. Okay, and that ain't easy. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, as hard as we have tried, there are somewhere between 500 and 1,000 CBT trained, competent, credentialed CBTI people in the world. Mm. Okay, that's not enough. 
Right. We're working on that. Okay. But I set up a directory online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did this partly because I'm a real goddammit. But I also did it because the societies, God bless them all, bless their hearts, um, can't figure out are they a provider directory or are they a membership catalog? And the rest of the world doesn't care about your membership in whatever society. They're looking for help. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put something up that's very clearly these are people who provide CBTI. This is what they say they do. Okay. So the first question would be, how do you know if they don't bite? Mm-hmm. I don't because it's all comers. If you say you treat insomnia, you're in. Well, Michael, that's not a very good idea. That's a fairly low bar. Yes, it is. I also asked the people to profile themselves in the directory. Like, you know, questions about how long have you been practicing? How often do you do CE, CME stuff? Blah, blah, blah. Um, What parts of CBTI do you do? There is enough information in that profile for each and every therapist for anyone to look through it and say, hmm, this person looks pretty competent. They have a DBSM. They have a CBSM, which is a rogue board credential like you would have in medicine through the American Board of Medical Specialties, so ABMS. Um, typically, you don't go to your internist for plastic surgery. And if you're going to do plastic surgery, you might want to find out if they're boarded in it, okay, before you have your face redone. So the same thing with your sleep and your insomnia. You might want to find out if they're boarded in it. So the provider directory online helps you find people that say they do CBTI and gives you a profile that allows you as a patient to say they look like they're pretty experienced. Mm-hmm. That's where you go for help. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else like it? No. There are membership directories that are cross-linked with that site. You can go looking there. Now, there's some good news. The bad news is, is there somebody in your city? Yeah, if you live in New York or L.A. Okay. What about, pick a city in Iowa for me. I can't even think. Des Moines. Of uh, Des Moines. Mm, actually, maybe. I, I think I know someone in Des Moines. But... Um, If you're in a smaller city in the Midwest, the odds are there's no CBTI people. That's the bad news. Mm -hmm. The good news is a COVID thing, which is COVID forced on all of us the use of telehealth and the relaxing of the restrictions around state jurisprudence or jurisdiction, I think Mm -hmm. is the word. So it is now possible to do CBTI via telehealth. And you can identify someone in the directory that's not in your state, not in your city, and potentially they can still treat you. Mm -hmm. There's a longer uh, part of this story, but let's just say several professional societies are trying to figure out how to give you national licensure. Mm And many people in that directory have that national license credential. That's an oversimplification of what it is. So where do you find somebody that's good? Go to the directory. Um, How do you know they're good? Read the profile. 
Okay. Do they have training? What are they claiming? Do they publish? Do they have they been doing it for 20 years? I mean, look through the questions. They were designed to tell the average bear this person is probably a good bet. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. And so then the the 45 year old lawyer uh, would go and see and get evaluated. And if they do start at CBTI interventions for her, what what would that look like? Uh, it would look like mm, usually six to eight weeks. There's something called BBTI, which we can discuss today or another time. Um, that stands for Brief Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. Um, there's also internet offerings that come and go. Um, let's take the internet offerings first. Um, they, because CBTI is so algorithm driven, it is possible to program around it. Um, does that work for people? Yeah. Does it work as well as in-person or video conferenced in-person CBTI? No. Are the attrition levels higher with unguided CBTI through internet CBTI? Way higher, like double triple. Why? People need to have their hands held through this. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, CBTI is not fun. It is not a therapy of, you know, self-exploration, discovering some of the really interesting aspects of who you are and why you behave as you do. Nobody cares. Okay. That's not what CBTI is. Uh, it, it, there is no relevance or little relevance of those aspects. No one will ask you about your mother and your father. No one will care too much about your relationship with your sick partner. There are basic things that we are targeting. Okay. So usually therapy, I said there's ICBTI or digital CBTI. Good, but about half the efficacy and twice the attrition because it's hard to do without help. Mm -hmm. CBTI is not a fun therapy, and the first three weeks absolutely bite. Um, you are going to get worse before you get better. Mm -hmm. And celebrate how bad you get because it is a harbinger for how good things are going to work out. Okay? It, is pre it presages. It's prescient for treatment response. And okay. for the listeners, that's because of the, the sleep restriction mostly that's occurring? Um. In, the sh in one word, yes. Mm -hmm. In two words, no, and no, <laughs> um, because I had to make that one up. <laughs> because stimulus control and sleep restriction both put limits on the amount of time you're in bed, mm -hmm. and they drive your typical sleep durations down. But there's, that's the bad news. The good news is your sleep suddenly gets very consolidated and deep. Mm -hmm. Okay, so even people in the middle of the beginning of CBTI, as hateful as it is, are saying, yeah, I get this, because even though I need more, I like what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. But it usually takes, in a super-duper compliant patient, a few days, usually a few weeks, because people buy in, in the middle of the night, they think, I don't want to do this. And that lizard brain comes back with, absolutely, screw Michael Perlis. Let's do just what we want. 
and your part of your brain what agrees <laughs> and we have to fight that how do we fight that we've got to make sure you're unconscious how do we do that this element of stimulus control and sleep restriction which curtails time in bed makes it more likely that you are going to be sleeping under your sleep need that's the bad the good is boy is your sleep going to get thick and consolidated mm. in a way that most people haven't experienced for decades so six to eight weeks first two weeks bite um that has to do with the sleep limits placed by stimulus control and sleep restriction and so for the 45 year old lawyer she's going to work with the cbti therapist who's going to tell her you know for um well it's a six to eight week sort of treatment overall but in the beginning phases that she's going to be limited in the amount of time that she can be in bed and so and she's, she's going to fight back on that yep so she's, she's going to say the only way i'm going to get my six and a half is to be in bed for eight mm -hmm. and we have that's the cognitive piece i was alluding to earlier mm -hmm. which is it takes a lot of explaining cajoling beseeching to get people to buy in Mm -hmm. and make a commitment to a week or two of suffering to break the fever of insomnia mm -hmm. um, and the fever or rather the breaking is going to be that if there are a six hour sleeper they may be getting five and a half now for a week or two mm -hmm. and they're going to hate that yeah and they're going to feel crummy during the day crummier than they've ever felt so she instead of getting in bed at 10 and then waking up at 6 a.m is going to be told that she can't get into bed until uh, midnight if she's normally sleeps six hours or I refuse to answer that question on the grounds that it may incriminate me oh, okay I plead the fifth <laughs> I, I, I what I don't want to do here mm -hmm. is to do short shrift to what sleep restriction therapy is sure because people will say okay I'll just go to bed two hours later mm. and that's not how it works right um, there's an assessment piece that tells us precisely how long you should be in bed mm -hmm. and when we should titrate up down or not mm -hmm. and it's just not a thing to be done by the individual right partly because of the math mm -hmm. partly because of the tracking partly because it's just really hard to do when your body is screaming for sleep for you to argue yourself out of going to bed when you normally go to bed getting out of bed later because last night was terrible mm -hmm. that having a therapist riding shotgun is essential right and so I don't want to in any way provide something that will translate into something stupid like I'll just go to bed two hours earlier and everything will be magically fine it right. will not right yeah okay so I plead the fifth on that okay and then but as the for the um, um, stimulus uh, restriction um, how would that look practically for the lawyer that that I'll share with you and here's why stimulus control couldn't be simpler in its execution and it's what every one of us should do insomnia or not it is the way to protect yourself against be, ha having virulent insomnia in the first place that's mm -hmm. this simple if you're awake you're not in bed what do you do I don't care do whatever you want okay don't give insomnia function don't work okay especially don't work during WASO periods or SL or sleep onset problem periods 
there's some argument that can be made to doing things a little bit differently with early morning awakenings. But at the end of the day, stimulus control is very simple. You don't want non-sleep behaviors associated with a bad bedroom, like reading TV, cooking. Um, I've seen people move their entire world into their bedrooms. Yeah. And it usually starts with, you know, I'm going to wait for sleep, you know, because if I leave the room, I'll miss it, you know. So I'm going to stay here no matter what. But, you know, I get bored, so I'm going to bring a TV into the room. And you know what? I, I get a little hungry when I'm watching TV, so I'm going to bring a little cubicle fridge in the room so I can have a nosh. And you know what? Some nice herbal tea, because I don't do caffeine, um, which is stupid, by the way. Um, uh, I could use a nice herbal tea, so they bring a hot pot into the room. Before you, After 10 years goes by, most of the house is in the bedroom. That's bad stimulus control. Mm -hmm. What should happen in the bedroom? Sleep and sex. TV out. Hot pot out, cube refrigerator out, all your books out. Now, is that forever? Some of it. Stimulus control is forever. When you have a bout of insomnia, what do you do? Stop trying. Get out of bed if you can. Leave the room. Do something else. Does it have to be painful? No, this is not punishment. Do whatever you want, but don't give your insomnia a function. Don't be more productive because you did three hours of work in the middle of the night. Okay, you give insomnia a reason to live and live it will. Mm. Okay, so what should you do? What most of us do, watch TV, watch a movie. Oh, I might stay awake longer. Great. Okay, so stimulus control, aside from being a natural companion to sleep restriction, stimulus control is forever. It's like death and taxes, you know, it's forever. What do you do when you can't sleep? Stop trying. How do I do that? Get out of bed. Commit to being awake. Enjoy. Found time. Okay? That's stimulus control. Now, that's a vast oversimplification, but that rule you should use always. What are the real rules for prophylaxis? What do you do when you have insomnia? Nothing. What's that mean? Don't go to bed earlier. Don't get out of bed later. Don't nap. Tough it out. Can I have a cup of coffee? Absolutely. Most people won't tell you that. Go, oh my God, coffee, no. How else are you gonna stay awake? Okay, have a cup of coffee. Be careful with it. I wouldn't have it at eight if you're planning to go to bed at 10. That won't work out nicely. It's all about timing, okay? So stimulus control is for life. Can't sleep, don't. Um, where should I be? Out of the bedroom. And what's the other rule? Never, never, ever compensate for a bad night. No matter how much you want to, don't. Because it increases the odds that tomorrow night will be bad too. Okay, so stimulus control, unlike sleep restriction. Sleep restriction is, shoot, the hard part is, you know, a week to four weeks. Then, it, you know, the upward trajectory is okay in the context of therapy. Stimulus control begins in therapy and never ends. Mm -hmm. It's the best thing that you can do to put guardrails around your sleep as you get older and there will be more threats to your sleep. Mm -hmm. So practically speaking, you know, people that are listening to this and who may have the same degree of insomnia as the 45, the 45 year old lawyer, or maybe more mild, they can 
always use some of these stimulus control principles of, of uh, you know, keeping the room for sleep or sex, like you had mentioned, and, and nothing else. Um, and and I think you, you mentioned a couple of things that kind of go against. Well, actually, far more important is go ahead. stop trying, get out of bed, mm -hmm. be awake. That, you know, the stimulus control part is about denuding the bedroom of competing stimuli, the mm -hmm. television, the, the hot pot the books, the lights, and we can talk about light later or some other time. Those are all interesting, but the power and the potency of stimulus control therapy is stop trying, mm. get out of bed. Here's some good news, ready for this? It's a blue light special, okay? It's a bog off, it's a twofer. If you get up out of bed and really be awake, that buys you a lot more homeostatic pressure, homeostatic press, sleep pressure for your next round of sleep. And mm. it does it in a way that is completely different from the wake period. So let me be clear about the Kmart blue light special. During the day, for every hour that you are awake, you buy a half an hour of sleep. During sleep, Every hour that you're awake buys, every half an hour that you're awake buys you an hour of sleep. It's a blue light special, but it only works if you're really awake. And better yet, bank it for tomorrow night, not tonight. Mm. Okay, That's one of the reasons stimulus control really works. So, you know, what's more important? Don't read in bed? Read in bed. But when you're awake and you don't want to be, get up get out. Mm. That's more important. So that's a major takeaway for people. Don't, don't try to fall asleep. Don't, don't, uh, if you're don't... trying, it's already too late. Yeah. And another thing that you mentioned as well is don't try to compensate for, for lost sleep. Let it accumulate, let it work for you. Now there will be occasions where that does not work. Like you've got, you know, a huge job interview or you're doing surgery or you're flying a plane. And you know, you've got a bunch of people in the back of the plane, you don't feel like killing. There are times where the potential for lost performance outweighs compensation, but they're rare. And most people function beautifully. Most patients with insomnia will tell you, I function pretty good. I don't like it, I feel like crap, but can I rise to the occasion? You betcha. Okay. In fact, when you neuropsychologically evaluate most patients with insomnia, there is no difference. And what that means is they were either geniuses who, because of the insomnia, have become average, or they're trying to tell us something else, which is, yeah, they can do it, whatever it is. It just feels bad, and it feels like I have to try twice as hard, which is mm -hmm. probably true. Okay. So in general, get out, give up, let sleep pressure work for you is the tenets and the foundation of stimulus control, one of them. And that's the best thing everybody can do for their whole lives mm -hmm. is give up, get out. It's hard. Have a cup of, go to Starbucks, get one of those really strong coffees. Should I drink it an hour before bed? No, you idiot. Of course not. Well, good. Well, um, you know, 
I know uh, that that was our lightning round, but it's it's you know we've taken know. up a lot of your time. I'm so sorry. I think I think it would be good for to just go back through very quickly, kind of like some of some of the takeaways. I'll say my takeaways, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if I wasn't paying you know good good enough attention. So, what defines normal sleep? Uh, your answer, and this is just going off of my memory, but I, is really um, uh, to to not have problems with falling or staying asleep and uh, not having problems uh, waking up earlier than, than you would like to. And it's not based on a certain number of hours, even though people, you know, hear something like eight hours, um, but that it's really about not having problems falling or staying asleep. The other things that you mentioned are the sleep architecture. Uh, so, you know, having the normal stage one, two, three, four and REM of sleep uh, that, that that one would expect so being able to reach all stages of sleep i guess you would say mm -hmm. uh, and then to um have the circadian rhythm that you want to have which for most people is to you know sleep when it's dark out and wake up once it's once it's light out let me jump in and just say a word about sleep duration because everybody keeps saying eight yep and actually the modal range is seven to nine mm-hmm um, that's where most people, that's how much sleep most people get, mm -hmm. or is that how much time they're in bed? We're not really quite sure what these epidemiologic studies mean, mm -hmm. but let me put it to you this way. There is no number because this is probably the most variable thing you can imagine. It depends on your age, your health, your sex, your race. A million different things, your circumstances, your level of aerobic activity during the day, your cognitive load. There is no number. Now, for you, is there an average number? Probably. And it's somewhere between 4 and 12. That's how variable it is. And so for some people, there, there's such a thing as too much sleep. And they don't know it. And that's one of the reasons they feel poorly during the day is that they are oversleeping. Sleep is not the fountain of youth. Sleep is food. And it is possible to have too few calories and too many. So the sleep duration issue is a complex one, but let's not leave it out of the equation, which is if you have problems falling and staying asleep or waking up too early, and you feel like you're getting too little sleep, that's worth exploring. But that number will be hard to find even for you. That's a part of CBTI that is less lauded and less well-developed, but there is a way for each and every person to find their number, their sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And that's really the second mission of CBTI. The first mission is consolidate your sleep and get rid of the unwanted SL Waso EMA. The second part is let's find a number that works for you in a phase that works for you. Am I going to worry about sleep architecture or sleep microarchitecture? I am not. No therapist alive would. We work in the values of sleep continuity and are confident that the rest of the ship will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. okay. There are other, lots of other sleep disorders, which we haven't talked about, nor will we. But those things can cause abnormal sleep too. So let me do um, a self-promotional, not really thing here. We set up a screener online 
to help people work through the symptoms of 13 different sleep disorders, people should use that like crazy. And then print it out or email it to yourself, which you can, and take it to your doctor. If you have no idea, you have a vague sense that your sleep is bad and you feel bad during the day, but you can't put your finger on it, really doesn't feel like insomnia, or that doesn't feel like it's the lion's share, go online, take that screener, print it out and take it to your doctor and make sure they listen. Where do they find that? Okay, it's located at, for now, https colon slash slash sleephealthscreen.com. I'm pretty sure you can just type into Google or whatever sleephealthscreen.com and it'll show up. Okay. It's relatively new. In fact, very new, the last couple of months. Um, this is where everybody should start. Don't assume you have, don't assume me that you have insomnia or a circadian rhythm disorder or a sleep disorder, breathing disorder. Don't assume anything. Just go profile your sleep health and then take that to somebody to look at. Mm -hmm. All right. And so the next question, I'm just summarizing the answer. The most common sleep disorders are insomnia by far. And then um, followed by that, based on what's been studied is probably um, disordered breathing and sleep, like obstructive sleep apnea. Um, but like you said, it depends on what we're looking at. Um, the next question that I'd ask was, how does somebody know if they have clinically significant insomnia? You said they'll know, because like we said, difficulty falling or staying asleep. Um, and they should, uh, what should they do? They should uh, look for a somebody that's trained and credentialed in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, and you, you gave an example of several different sort of uh, databases to search for that or directories, mm -hmm. including your own. Yeah, let's not call it my own. Um, that probably is misleading. Mm -hmm. It's called the International Directory of CBTI Providers. Mm -hmm. And this is at https colon slash slash CBTI dot directory. CBTI is lowercase. All right, so how is insomnia treated? Your answer was, of course, kind of behavioral therapy for insomnia is one of the treatments as well as medications. And then there's several different classes for medications. A lot of these are being underutilized most likely. And uh, and you said, you know, that um, you can think of insomnia as like a, like an infection and that kind of early aggressive treatment is, a, is um, you know, the way that medications should probably be, be viewed and right now that's not exactly how they're how they're being used so perhaps later we can do a deeper dive into that specifically about medications um, so the major components of CBTI you mentioned uh, sleep restriction stimulus control and then sleep hygiene and uh, I think we focused a bit on sleep restriction and stimulus control being very important components um, so, uh, you know, the main thing with stimulus control being to, uh, you know, try to reduce how many stimulating things you have in your sleep environment and to uh, try to not fight uh, your, try to not fight the insomnia. Trying to, uh, if you're trying to sleep, then that's, that adds to the problem and that your sleep quality improves if you don't try to fight it and you just go ahead and, and uh, get out of bed, if that's correct. Yep, our, our slogan is get up, get out. 
Yep. And uh, for the um, the sleep restriction, uh, you know, working one-on-one with, with your provider, they'll kind of tailor, but basically a plan to try to decrease the amount of time that you're laying in bed and so that you can consolidate the sleep that you're having and, and get higher quality sleep. Um, and then uh, sleep hygiene, which probably many people are familiar with being, you know, some of these tips and tricks of, of uh, what are considered to be, uh, you know, healthy ways to prepare yourself for sleep and to kind of have a quote unquote healthy sort of sleep environment, I guess you could say. We didn't speak too much about those, but we could also talk about that later. Um, yeah, I absolutely want to stress how useless they are mm-hmm. as a bludgeon. Is that the word? Bludgeon against insomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of handing somebody a list of rules is absolutely useless. Half of them are wrong. Mm-hmm. The one we touched upon is the use of caffeine, which is verboten. And people go crazy. They have no more chocolate for the rest of my life because that caused the insomnia. It neither caused nor perpetuates. It neither precipitated or perpetuates the insomnia. It is a bad suggestion. Mm. Okay. You've taken the one tool that you have to impact the homeostatic regulation of sleep. And we can define that in a, in a second. You've taken it away from yourself. It's so wrong-headed, it's beyond imagining. Sleep is homeostatically regulated. What that means is for every hour you're awake, you buy a half an hour. If you curtail how long you're awake, you're buying less. And if you try to get the same amount, and you've only got enough money to buy for less, if what you've accumulated allows six, you try for eight, how many hours of insomnia are you going to have? two hours mm-hmm. okay well that's an oversimplification how do you stay awake for the whole day when you're exhausted that's what starbucks is invented for <laughs> that's why they're on every damn corner mm-hmm. that's why people are constantly on the lookout for near starbucks um, that when you are sleeping poorly and when you need to be vigilant and have good performance we caffeinate, and we shouldn't take that away from anyone. However, we should proceed cautiously because it can be a problem. But the idea that somebody in this day and age is playing Mad Men, and what I mean by that is Draper, the character Draper from the series Mad Men, who would do cocaine at lunch, and for the in between dinner and lunch, he would have three martinis, and then at dinner he'd have a pot of coffee, and then he couldn't sleep. Shocking. I don't think that exists anymore. That's what sleep hygiene was meant. It was meant for what's his name? Something Draper. I'm not um, sure. It was meant for a kind of lifestyle that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Okay, with most people. Um, it's not meant for the average bear with chronic insomnia. And in fact, we need to put caffeine back. Okay. As a tool, as a if tool. you use it earlier in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Which also probably relates to what you had mentioned before about stimulants, but maybe yep. we'll need to save that for a medication talk. Yep. All right. Um, well, you know, I think that um, 
the, the, the questions that came after that were related to the 45 year old lawyer, which, uh, you know, is again, implementing after she would get connected with a CBTI therapist would start implementing some of the sleep restriction and stimulus control and possibly sleep hygiene things, um, that the therapist would recommend for. So the, that was it for the questions. Um, I guess my last thing here to kind of wrap things up is, is there anything, um, that uh, anywhere that f folks can can go uh, to, to learn more about you and your work with CBTI? I'm not particularly important in all of this. Um, I think the most important thing is if you don't sleep well, screen. How do I screen? Go online and screen. If you get a report, take that to somebody. If you take it to your primary care doc, I'm not sure what's gonna happen. If you take it to a specialist, frankly, um, when I say specialist, I mean sleep center, hopefully good things will happen. Um, you might, if you have an insomnic profile, if it said insomnia on the report, maybe the best place to start is with a behavioral sleep medicine clinician because they'll know what to do for the other stuff that they will may or may not treat it, but they will certainly get you further down the road of assessment and get you to the right people. So my gut instinct is screen, find a CBTI behavioral sleep medicine provider, explore, assess, find out if CBTI through them is your correct pathway. Mm -hmm. If not, they'll get you to the right place. Great. That's, that's the best trajectory. No, right. Me, fine. I have a website up that has my name on it. It makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, it's like www, all lowercase, michaelperlis.com. It's really annoying that we named it that. I, I'm wrestling with whether to change it to something else. Then it will be less searchable, so I haven't done it. People can go there and they can learn everything about me. There's an autobiography in there that was taken out of a K-24 grant. They can learn the, the reason I got into sleep medicine is a great secret. <laughs> and it's that story is buried in there. And it will not be anything you could imagine. Um, <laughs> but I'll give you a hint. It had something to do with RBD, better known as REM behavior disorder. And <laughs> my experiences with that as a young person in my 20s. So not me, Very interesting. other people. So yeah. they can go there if they want to learn about me. I don't know why they'd want to, but they can find out more about me there. And lots of resources there, um, probably links to articles and stuff, which I don't think anybody should read. I think especially people who are not clinical researchers, you don't need to read. Go to a CBTI person who's good, and they will get you on your way. Great. Well, one last question that I ask people when uh, when they come on is is there is there something that you that isn't related to this talk so isn't related to CBTI something that you do that is for your brain health sleep what could be more important for your brain health other than sleep but it can't be sleep it can't be sleep you. no no not with not with our insomnia talk it needs to be out of left field or okay I I guess. You know, what I am as an academic, I'm a professional thinker, and I love the world of the mind. I can be endlessly entertained by it. Mm -hmm. And my guess, absent 
real knowledge about these subjects is the very best thing that you can do with your brain is engage it mm. forever. Mm -hmm. And engaging doesn't mean doing calculus necessarily, unless that's your thing. It doesn't necessarily mean reading Dostoevsky unless that's your thing. Mm -hmm. It could be reading, as I do, trash spy novels or watching really good episodes of Star Trek. Um, now, that's a little passive, you know, the watching mm -hmm. thing. But uh, my best guess is the way to brain health for a long time is being engaged with the world in a way that really keeps you awake at night. I had to do that. You knew I was going to do that. Um, yeah, that's that, great. That makes you not want to sleep. Yeah, that's the well, best thing I can think of. Yep, yep. Staying engaged and uh, trying to avoid kind of too many passive things, is especially with uh, with aging, to try to uh, be studying different topics and staying dynamic in your thinking. And think of how many interesting things. I mean, I know it differs for everybody. I'll tell you, when I retire, here's what I want to do. I want to study expressions and where they came from. Mm. And I want to spend tons of time devoted to that because it's always been a fascination. Um, right now... You mean like f expressions, phrases, yeah, or like facial expressions? No, I did enough oh, okay. facial electromyography and yeah. research in my life. No, 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 expressions. So how about, here's an example that albatross around my neck. Where the hell did that come from? The shit hit the fan. Where did that come from? Did somebody actually do that? Because I could have told you that was going to be a problem. So there are in millions of expressions in English alone, let alone other languages, that could really occupy the mind when, you know, in interesting ways. So if, when my time comes for retirement, uh, that's the way I hope to occupy my mind and time is to start studying my language, but not language in linguistics, language in expressions. Cause yeah. I think that's so cool. That is cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's, that's a great, great example and great idea, Michael. Um, I've really appreciated this chat. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll look for the next time that we can do this, and maybe do some deeper dives and medications and uh, some of these other things that that we left on the table. So. Awesome. Hey, listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon. So please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review. So please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.